was in full bloom, everybody was going crazy, just loving being on the road and, and just writing all the time, you yeah. know, writing songs at soundcheck, writing songs in an alley after soundcheck, you know, writing most of the words for Zen Arcade, sleeping in the back of that van. Lord knows when Bob would be out of the room, Greg would bitch about Bob. When I was out of the room, I'm sure it was about me, and when Greg was out of the room, it was about him, so we each took our turn. Somebody was like, hey, did you know that Robert Palmer used to do a cover of New Day Rising? Robert Palmer. Yeah, that guy. Addicted to love guy. He loved New Day Rising and played it as an encore. Welcome to Do You Remember, a podcast about Husker Du from The Current. I'm Mary Lucia. In our previous episode, Bob Mould, Grant Hart, and Greg Norton became the fastest hardcore band in the U.S. Now we follow them as they sign with SST, America's most highly regarded punk label. Bob told me this part of the story. Mike Watt and, you know, New Alliance offered to put out a record once they heard what we were doing and we gave them what became Land Speed Record. And we also gave them the Anna Free Land single. So, you know, New Alliance was was a Pedro label, but they were friends with Black Flag. I mean, it, you know, we were very comfortable with, with Watt and D Boone at New Alliance. Mm-hmm. And then when we started working with Greg and Chuck and Mugger and Dukowski and everybody over at SST, you know, it was, it was, it was family. It was like a commune. So when the time was right, we transitioned over from New Alliance to Reflex for an album and then to SST for Metal Circus and Arcade, New Day Rising, Flip Your Wig. SST was at the head of an explosion of independent punk labels popping up across America. Terry Katzman explains. The Washington labelers Discord Records, a label that recorded Minor Threat and probably Slash in California. Posh Boy was another California label that was sort of dedicated to straight punk rock bands and stuff. Lots of labels, I mean... There was too many, too many to count back then. So uh, you had Chicago labels, you had Texas labels. It was pretty much wide open. But SST was the pathfinder. Founded by Black Flag guitarist Greg Ginn in 1978, the SST office was his Long Beach, California home, and bands would frequently stay over. That included the Hooskers. Black Flag singer Henry Rollins explained to the current's Brian Oak. Like when Husker Du would come to L.A., they'd stay with Black Flag on the floor of our office. You know, we all slept there. And when we were in Minneapolis, we would stay with them. I think the last time I stayed with a Husker member was 85. We all crashed at Grant's place. Because, you know, we on tour, you're looking for somebody's floor to stay on. You know, mm-hmm. we slept in the office. You know, I slept under Henry's desk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was what we, you know, Greg Ginn's mom would bring a block of cheese over. You know, we'd go get chili cheese fries once a day. That was our allotment of money. Right. <laughs> Food. Right. But that's what we did. But it was great. You know, you we could, we could go down to the Sunset Strip and, you know, see all the craziness that happened down there. Mm-hmm. You know, we got exposed to all these amazing things. It was more than friendship. You were allies. And the forces that sought to neutralize you and silence you were were quite present. 
and you really felt it. I mean, there it wasn't subtle, and so that's why labels stuck together. Like bands on labels stuck together, and a lot of touring bands, you know, bands who spent a lot of time on the road, like Black Flag did, like Husker Du did, DOA uh, bands like that. You set up networks. Like when you're in Austin, you stay with the big boys. When you're in Seattle, you stay with these guys. When you're in Vancouver, you stay with DOA. And they would do the same. They'd come through your, your town, and they'd stay with you. Because no one has the money for hotels. You're either living in your van or you're living uh, on the generosity of strangers or a band. And there's so many bands whose places we slept at, hell, in their practice rooms sometimes, because it was, it was like that. It was like, oh, they're on SST, you know, free who's could do records for me. Like their new label, Husker Du kept its eye on business. Here's Rollins again. And when I joined Black Flag, uh, Husker Du was like an ally band, and they were a band that the rest of the guys in, in Black Flag very much admired. And so they signed to SST, and they would come to the West Coast to do shows and record. And they would usually release one record and be out there for the release while they recorded the next record. They were very businesslike about that. I mean, they were very, you know, steady. So there's always a new record coming out. There's always shows. And they really had, you know, their their world together. And I remember 1983, I think it was, we're doing shows up the coast. And it was Santa Barbara, I think. And Bill Stevenson, Black Flag's drummer, and I were watching Who's could do play, realizing we have to go on after their set. And we're just watching them, and we simultaneously looked at each other and we're like, what are we going to do? Because they were just so good. You know, you better have eaten your Wheaties that morning. There'll be more after this short break. Dead Kennedy singer Jello Biafra remembers getting to hear the band's new material in San Francisco before they took it to the studio. Yeah, it was always fun to have the Who's Cruise visit. So uh, we had the Who's Cruise visit. And um, they, I was their band hotel all the way up until maybe uh, when they started playing at the Fillmore right before they went to Warner Brothers and stuff. So every time they'd come through, usually they were driving south and on their way. So I'd be treated to demos of what they were going to record in L.A. with Spot. And then sometimes it might even reappear back up a while later. Okay, this is what we made. By the mid-80s, a growing network of venues across America began hosting bands from SST and other independent labels. Ray Farrell, who was SST's promotion man in the 80s, explained to Michelangelo Matos. You had First Avenue and 7th Street Entry in, in Minneapolis. That was a key place, obviously. The Cabaret Metro in Chicago. There's, I mean, I'm trying to remember all this. Rock Hotel for a little while in New York. CBGB's. City Gardens especially uh, in Trenton, New Jersey. There were many places in L.A., all kinds of places, whether it was the Anti-Club or Perkins Palace or there, there was a, a metal oriented club up somewhere in Simi Valley. There were a lot of places to play. One of those places was Boston's Rat Skeller, or The Rat, which Husker Du played twice in 1984. The Rat's talent booker, 
Julie Farman spoke with Michelangelo Matos. One other thing that I want to say about the American indie scene was that it was very connected nationally. We all knew each other. Everybody supported each other. We knew people who worked at fanzines and newspapers and college radio stations. So a lot of what we knew about it and the artists that we knew about it come from word of mouth. It come from somebody seeing somebody and saying they were great or somebody, uh, you know, touring in Boston and staying at my house and telling me about another band and... It was a combination of word of mouth and of college radio, particularly WZBC, which was the Boston College Station, and it was a little bit artsier than WMBR, which was the other very influential college station. And I heard about them through uh, the replacements as well as some writers and radio and just must have been, it was before Zen Arcade, so... Even if Husker Du had sucked, which obviously they didn't, even if nobody had heard Husker Du, they would have come to the show because they were part of all our scene. You know, like it was, you just supported those artists. They were dense and loud, and that it was all about the feeling more than it was about the music, at least at that point. And within the confines of that club, it was a small room. And the way that they were able to hit the audience, like Wall of Sound is such a cliche, it wasn't Wall of Sound, it was more like, (sighs) they were just loud and fierce and unified. There was, the legal capacity was 262, and we probably slammed 500 people in there when we could. Uh, We definitely did it with R.E.M., I'm sure we did it with The Replacements and with Husker Du, we did it with Metallica. That's not true. Metallica played during a snowstorm. We did it with Megadeth. (laughs) We didn't distinguish between Metallica and the Violent Femmes. If they were on an independent label, if they were doing it on their own, they were the same. That was certainly the case at SST. Though Black Flag and other bands, including the Hooskers, had once played hardcore, the music was beginning to expand. Here's Ray Farrell again. Black Flag didn't see themselves as a punk band. Black Flag saw themselves as a rock band. They saw all of their bands as as rock bands on the label. The assumption is made that, you know, because you're having to work outside of the system, meaning that you're not playing the standard clubs because these clubs are afraid of Black Flag or hardcore or whatever it is, that the clubs might be somewhat intimidated by what could happen to their clubs, destroying things, getting hurt, riots, etc. At the time, it, we knew that there was a shift taking place. The promoters wouldn't promote this so much as hardcore, but there were certain bands like Husker Du, Minutemen, Black Flag especially. There, there's other bands on the label that were just booked that way. St. Vitus was really a metal band, but it would still tour with Black Flag because in SST's view, these categories of what kind of music it is are, are really unimportant. Here's Henry Rollins. You couldn't really call it punk rock. Like, not the Meat Puppets, not, not Saccharine Trust, uh, not the Minutemen. They're always kind of weird and maybe in their own way kind of arty. And Husker Du was definitely like that. Yeah, it just wasn't about sticking it to the man. I think they really drew their influences from more, you know, like the birds. You know, like like just more tuneful pop music, not necessarily like the Sex Pistols or the Clash. And I'm not saying they're putting it down. It's just that they were on a whole other thing. Even Black Flag would like kind of bristle against that. And and I 
I think just from being around them and hearing, you know, just hearing the records, that punk rock was not on their agenda. It was not a political thing that they were going for lyrically. It was more of an emotional pop thing. And I think maybe that's where they were headed. Not in a lightweight way, but Who's Credit was a very ambitious band. And you have two huge songwriters in the band. You know, Grant and Bob were both going for it. Each one of them could have written enough for a band, but with both of them. And I think between the two of them, they might have had some competition. I'm no expert on the band, but I, I certainly spend a, quite a bit of time around them. And I think between the two of them, there was quite a lot of uh, creative friction. The first thing the band recorded for SST was the Metal Circus EP, released in 1983. Some of the leftover songs from that era, such as Heavy Handed, which we just heard, have been reissued by the Numero Group as a vinyl-only EP titled Extra Circus. But Bob and Grant were writing even more songs, a lot more songs, for their first proper SST album. Here's Bob. You know, with Zen Arcade, it was... You know, a lot of the writing happened in the late summer of 83. Mm -hmm. I think Metal Circus had just come out. I think I think we recorded the album in fall of 83. I was living out of a box, pretty much. I more or less was homeless. When mm -hmm. I wasn't in the van, I would be living in... You know, Kelly Linehan's basement mm -hmm. <laughs> for $15 a month, you know, or just floating from place to place yeah. sort of on the, you know, on the generosity of others. And it was a crazy time. You know, Grant had gotten in with the folks at the church, the somewhat abandoned church that became a lifestyle and a venue mm -hmm. and a commune and all these other things that... You know, it was just crazy at that time. There was a lot of LSD going around. Mm -hmm. You know, there was just a lot of madness. And that record, I think, is a really amazing time capsule. Did you realize, even when you were putting the songs together, that it would ultimately have sort of a concept feel to it? No, I mean, we talked about it in the van. Mm -hmm. You know, we started to see similarities with the songs because... It, it was the first time I think the three of us were dealing with, you know, being adults. Like we, like it was like, oh wait, we are the product of our respective parents, mm -hmm. you know, and you know where this coming from, you know, uh, you know, abusive childhood, violent childhood, broken homes. That's where those themes, I think, it just all started to come to the surface for the first time. You know, it wasn't songs about getting drunk or songs about I hate the government or mm -hmm. songs about the things that you work out. Of, you work those things out early on. But then when you get to the core of who you are and who you're about to be as, a, as an adult, that's what that record is. You know, it's that rite of passage. Mm -hmm. And it was happening to the three of us in the van. Mm -hmm. And we would we knew what the songs were about and we started to create storyboards to tie everything together and then once you do that then you're off and running then it's you know oh it's like quadrophenia but crazier writing all the time and probably 
taking a fair amount of speed okay. yeah, and drinking a lot. And I mean, everything was firing on all cylinders. We couldn't tour enough. We were always on the road. We were mm-hmm. living in that van. Mm-hmm. We were building a following. By by this point, we had been solid in the in the Southwest. Mm-hmm. We had been really solid all the way through the Great Lakes. We were playing a lot in Boston and New York and in D.C., you know, the old 930. Mm-hmm. We were starting to make inroads in the southeast. We were getting down to 688 in Atlanta. We were friends with REM, so mm-hmm. we were playing a lot in Athens and hanging out down there. I would go down there for, you know, a week at a time and, you know, stay with Stipe until, you know, he got sick of me. i go stay with Peter. Mm-hmm. And we were all, you know, we were all doing this thing, you know. We were all sharing connections and contacts and, and, and phone books and different promoters that were treating us right. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was, it was in full bloom. Everybody was going crazy, just loving being on the road and, and just writing all the time, you yeah. know, writing songs at soundcheck, writing songs in an alley after soundcheck, mm-hmm. writing, you know, writing most of the words for Zen Arcade in that, you know, sleeping in the back of that van. Yeah, it was it was a pretty pimping van. My dad brought us out a couple different vans. The one with the velour collapsible bed. Oh that, yeah, that was that one rocked. <laughs> <laughs> and we just drove those things into the ground. And sure when you we did. drove it into the ground, we'd get another one. Then Arcade started as a single record, and they kept, they would come into SST and, like, argue and drink coffee and then go kind of fight and then go into the van and work on songs and, like, take walks to get away from each other. They would just kind of slam together and then explode apart and, like, have written three more songs. And the studio session kept going. And meanwhile, they're coming in and out of SST day and night. And it just became this like lights on all the time as this kind of these two arguing men who'd have real, not knock down, drag out fights, but just real argumentative, you know, clashing of young creative ego. And they said the spot, who I think was producing it, or Joe Carducci is like, well, there's more songs five or ten nights in or whatever, it turned into this double album. And they kind of announced it. And it's like, it's a double album. And I don't think SST had ever done anything like that before. And that's what led to Double Nickels on the Dime by the Minutemen, who said, well, Husker do gets a double album, then we're going to do a double album. And SST went, "Uh, okay. (laughs) So that literally was a single-handed factor that led to Double Nichols being this you know, amazing, sprawling double album was because Husker had this wild, creative surge like right in front of us. And they were writing songs in the day and going and recording them that night. And I'd never been around a band that wrote it at noon and recorded it at 10 p.m. I'd never seen anything like that. It was like nothing like I'd ever done or had been around. But to watch them capitalize on this creativity that was a pretty amazing thing to witness 
Let's say that uh, the worst it got, there was still mostly respectfulness towards each other on the road. Lord knows when Bob would be out of the room, Greg would bitch about Bob. When I was out of the room, I'm sure it was about me. And when Greg was out of the room, it was about him. So we each took our turn. Nobody ever wins with two against one. That could have helped our longevity, but uh, you never know. There could have possibly been the, like, contingency where you have two bands united by conflict. Zen Arcade was Husker breakthrough. It finished eighth in the annual Village Voice Critics Poll that year. It remains the band's best-loved album. The current's Brian Oak was one of the many teenagers deeply affected by Zen Arcade. Zen Arcade literally changed the trajectory of my life. I went to Northern Lights, and I, you know, kid from a third-tier suburb, and I'm like, what's good? What's cool? And uh, <laughs> the guy behind the counter, he could have been like, oh, who's this suburban nerd? Yeah. And like, He said, this is the best record we have in the store, and I took it home, and just the top of my head came off. I had no Aww. context. I had, I, there was, I'd never heard anything like it, and I was listening to a lot of hardcore, but none of it retained the sense of melody like that. Zen Arcade appeared in stores in July of 1984. SST released it simultaneously with the Minutemen's double nickels on the dime. To the label's surprise, both albums sold out of their initial shipment, and there was a delay on the next one. Ray Farrell explains. You could run out of a pressing of something really quickly, and you could go for months without being able to afford the next pressing because you're owed so much from a distributor. Another case could be that the distributors are just not really paying attention to what they're doing. I remember when I started at SST, um, the Zen Arcade album was in a situation where we were running out of money because the distributors weren't paying us. And then what would happen, as often did throughout the music business, um, (laughs) a distributor would offer to pay for a pressing so that they would be the only ones that would have it. And by doing that, by fronting the money for it, they would want a deeper discount. But we would agree to it simply because it was a way of at least getting things out there and getting records out there. But there would be cases where we'd be back-ordered and we'd be waiting for money and we wouldn't have it. And, of course, the band could say, you know, this is crazy. We can't find our records in stores. Um, so part of it was that we were, as a label, we were growing very quickly and we had a lot of attention paid to us. But the downside is, is that you have to get paid by stores and distributors. And eventually there was a better system for selling directly to stores and directly through mail order. But um, relying on distributors was always um, kind of a hassle. Terry Katzman explains. The first sort of little bit of an alarm was when they went out, when Zen came out. You know, they went to all the record stores. There was no records there. And I think that's what started to move them to thinking about maybe a label change, even as as far as back then. I think it started between Zen and New Day. By the time of Zen Arcade's release, 
Husker Du had already recorded its follow-up. New Day Rising was released in January 1985. The album earned the band some well-placed new fans, as Greg Norton notes. Actually, this was on uh, uh, Facebook earlier today. As somebody was like, hey, did you know that Robert Palmer used to do a cover of New Day Rising? Robert Palmer. Yeah, that guy. Addicted to love guy. He loved New Day Rising and played it as an encore. So that was pretty surprising. In addition to teaching guitar and being a suicide commando, Chris Osgood worked for Twin Tone Records, and Husker Du shared office space with them. Chris told Andrea Swenson about the day the band showed him the internet. I would tease the Huskers when they got back from like London and they were in the copy room and you know, blowing up pictures of themselves in NME and stuff like that. I remember telling Grant one day that I was going to come back because his head was so big he was using up all the oxygen in the room. And I, I would come back at a later time. <laughs> Grant and I, in particular, goofed around a lot. But the story that I like to tell about Bob, and the one that I don't get to tell enough, is Bob showed me something he was doing on his computer. And I go, Bob, what is that? You know, what what are you doing on your computer? And he said, it's something called email. And I go, well, what do you do with it? And he goes, well, I'm actually writing to the um, places that we're going to be playing and advancing the gigs. And I said, you're doing that on your computer? And he goes, yeah, it's a, it's a way that one computer can talk to another computer. And I went, wow. By now, you've probably realized that Husker Du was a prolific group. In addition to releasing New Day Rising, they released a second album in 1985. Flip Your Wig had a poppier sound, and Husker Du was cleaning up on tour and on college radio, another crucial part of the independent rock circuit. One of the new fans of the band made through college radio was a Massachusetts resident named Paul Hilkoff, who would eventually put together thirdav.com, an extensive online Husker Du database. Paul spoke with Brian Oak. Well, I was actually a little bit late to the party. I didn't discover them until 1985. I had been listening for many years to what started out as underground radio, but gradually evolved into classic rock. And I was getting tired of hearing the same old songs over and over again. And I started exploring college radio and I heard Makes No Sense at All for the first time off the Flip Your Wig album, which was a college radio hit. And I liked it a lot. And then I started hearing a couple of other songs from Flip Your Wig and went out and bought it. It was the first album I had bought in six or seven years. It was the combination of intensity and melodicism, I think. I just couldn't imagine that anyone else was doing anything like that. And I loved it. I thought that this was the album that was going to save rock and roll. And I fell in love with the band. 
And I don't know, it just took off from there. <laughs> but campus stations, famous fans, and critical acclaim weren't enough to get Husker Du on commercial radio, as Ray Farrell explained. WHFS in D.C., there was KTCL in Fort Collins, Colorado. There was XRT in Chicago. They would occasionally put records into a standard rotation. Outside of, of key stations like that, then it would be limited to the Sunday night alternative radio program. Now, I was somewhat naive in regard to thinking that I could still push commercial radio stations to play records not knowing that I was up against all kinds of problems. You know, programmers, you're not spending any money on advertising, you're not from a major label. I was trying to do it purely on the basis of the sound of the records. And that was futile, but it was still important to me to keep knocking on doors because maybe something would happen. And that really didn't change much when Husker Du went to Warner's. Um, I used to think it was label bias, but it wasn't, it wasn't entirely that. That's right. Warner Brothers, Husker Du, was getting ready for the big time. There might have been a discussion between the band and the owners of SST that they were considering leaving. Um, I wasn't in on those conversations, uh, but their manager, David Savoy, I believe his name was, had explained that they were looking at other options because majors were starting to show some interest in what they did. This has been part four of Do You Remember, a podcast about Who's Do from The Current. I'm Mary Lucia. In our next episode, Bob, Grant, and Greg signed to Warner Brothers for the band's final phase and the slow road to the band's new box set. Who's Do has never had a cutting room floor, though. Or let's say if there is, we keep that floor well swept and anything that falls on that floor we make sure that we pick it up and put it where it belongs. That was Grant Hart again. You'll hear more from him and others on the next and final episode. Do You Remember was written by Michelangelo Matos, edited by Anna Reed, produced by David Safar, and directed by Brett Baldwin. Additional thanks to Johnny Vincevins. Brian Oak and Andrea Swenson contributed interviews to this episode. Special thanks to our guests, Jello Biafra, Julie Farman, Ray Farrell, Paul Hillkoff, Terry Katzman, Chris Osgood, Henry Rollins, and the members of Husker Du. You can find the music from this episode on Savage Young Du from the Numero Group and on The Living End from Warner Brothers. This podcast is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. I'm Mary Lucia. This is Do You Remember from The Current. <laughs>